danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 373 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Carlos Welch and also by today's guest, Ed Miller, both of whom I believe are in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada or thereabouts, although not in the same place. Uh, I am doing this introduction solo, uh, just sort of because of a time crunch. So uh, for those of you who listen primarily for Carlos's uh, soothing baritone, I don't blame you. And I apologize that I'm not able to deliver this. Hopefully you'll enjoy this intro anyway. Um, I have a strategy segment for you. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll tell you who Ed Miller is for those of you who don't know. Hard for me to imagine, but I guess he's been out of the poker game for a few years now. Uh, Ed Miller is a po- uh, professional poker player, author, coach, um, wrote a couple of prominent poker books, including The Course, Playing the Player, Poker's 1%, uh, has been a guest on this podcast uh, several times. This is probably like his fifth or sixth appearance. Um as I mentioned, has not really been in the poker world for a few years. This is not a uh, very poker-centric episode. This is uh, an Ed Miller-centric episode. Ed uh, works now in the sports betting industry, in particular uh, with a focus on in-play bets, which, you know, the the sorts of bets where you can bet on on the outcome of the second half of the game or the third quarter of the game or things along those lines. Um, I will say that neither Carlos nor I are particularly knowledgeable about uh, sports betting, surely less so than the average listener to the show. Uh, so don't be intimidated by you know, that this is going to be some sort of like really in-depth uh, strategic discussion for like serious sports bettors. This is much more of kind of an overview of like the, the state of contemporary uh, the sports betting in- environment and the concept of, of in-play betting in general. And I mean, this all relates back ultimately to the idea of um, making profitable wagers, which is in fact what poker is all about. So I don't think that the uh, the parallels are too forced. And then towards the end of the episode, we do check in with uh, Ed about some things that uh, he's talked to us about on previous episodes. So certainly any Ed Miller fans will uh, enjoy this episode. It was just a lot of fun. You know, essentially, this is uh, three friends who haven't talked to each other in a while um, having an interesting conversation. So I hope that you will enjoy that. A little bit of personal poker news. I have made another series for Sell for Why. Um, Some of you uh, presumably are familiar with that. This is the site that uh, Matt Berkey, among others, uh, are affiliated with. And uh, I previously made a bit of content for them. I've made a bit more. Um, This time, my series for them is focused on toy games. Uh, So this is both a, a video presentation of some of the material that might be familiar to you if you've read uh, my book, Play Optimal Poker, 
Uh, but then I also go beyond kind of taking some of those same toy games and doing a little bit more with them than, than what's in the book. So if you uh, think that you might benefit from seeing, uh, even if you have read the book, you know, if, if you felt like you didn't um, haven't fully grasped the concepts, you may find the, the video presentation and some of the visuals uh, are helpful to you in understanding them better. And then, as I said, the series does also take some of the, the toy games and concepts and extends them beyond what I did with them in the book. So I certainly would encourage anyone who's interested in that to check it out. Um, you can do that uh, by signing up at solveforwide.com. Um, I will have an affiliate link in the show notes, and I'll put that on Twitter as well. Uh, so it certainly would help uh, me out if you chose to use that affiliate link, but that, of course, is up to you. And the most important thing is just to check out the content. Um, I do also have a series on there dealing with the idea of targeting, of thinking about specific parts of your opponent's range and uh, how, how different lines or different actions that you take might target different parts of your opponent's range and make more or less sense based on mistakes or, or tendencies you think your opponent may have. So even if the uh, toy games thing doesn't appeal to you or while you signed up <laughs> in order to access the toy games material, you may also want to check out my series on targeting, which is also available uh, at solveforwhy.com. Uh, strategy Hand today is coming actually also from a former podcast guest, so Ed Miller has you know, been on the podcast many times. Uh, we also had Santiago Garcia Mancia on episode 357 of the show, and here is a strategy hand from Santiago. Santiago says, Hi, during 2019, I played my first event in the World Series of Poker with the mini main event. $1,000 tournament. My live experience was limited to small tournaments in my local casinos in Buenos Aires uh, and monthly home games with two groups of people. This is the hand I wanted to share. It's level eight, blinds are 500 to 1,000, tables nine-handed, it's a 30-minute freeze-out. Uh, an aggressive player with 75K opens the action in middle position to 2,500, 2.5 big blinds. All folds and the action comes to me on the button. I have 62k, about 60 big blinds, and pocket aces. I 3-bet to 7500, the blinds fold, and the original razor calls. My image was solid because I have good hands uh, in all the showdowns I've been involved in. <clears throat> So the pot, I'm just going to give you the whole hand because I kind of want to discuss the, the thought process here more than, than the actual play. There's 17.5k in the pot. There is about 55k in the effective stack. So we're looking at stack to pot ratio right around three. And the flop is king of spades, eight of spades, five of hearts. Santiago again has ace of hearts, ace of diamonds. So pocket aces, no spade. Board is king of spades, eight of spades, five of hearts. Villain checks, uh, and I c-bet 12k into a pot of 17.5. He check raises to 25k. I thought that if I call, I will be pot committed, so I start thinking about folding or going all in. Calling was not an option. I put him on a range of ace-king, king-queen, 8-8, 5-5, and flush draws. Kings were not an option. I think he would 4-bet those pre-flop. Finally, I went all in, taking into account the turbo structure and his aggressive style. He called with 5-5 and I was eliminated. Is it better to fold and fight a better hand to shove? Was my 3-bet preflop too small? Was my continuation bet too big? Uh, in freeze-out tournaments, do players bluff less often? Okay, so lots of uh, interesting questions from Santiago. Um, I do have answers to some of them, but I more just want to take a kind of holistic... Um, so I, I, we, we, we don't want to just assume that because 
you lost the pot and got eliminated from the tournament. I mean, I know it sucks. It was a tournament that you were excited about, your first WSP event. Um, it's entirely possible that like you did everything right and just got unlucky that this player flopped the set and you were eliminated, or even if you didn't do everything right, that it wouldn't have changed the outcome anyway. I mean, this is just unlucky. If, if someone flops a set against you in a three-bet pot when you have a legitimately very strong hand, um, I mean, I, I think that you are supposed to go broke in this spot, bottom line. Like, I, I think that uh, I would have lost all my chips in, in this spot. I might not have played it exactly the same way that, that you did, uh, but I think there's not necessarily like a really fundamental mistake here. In terms of things that, that might be done differently, just in order to better, get a better outcome like against the villain's range in general, I actually think this may even begin with your three betting range. The main way that you protect yourself against set mining is not by making larger three bets with a hand like aces. You know, I think when, once you see the flop with a stack to pot ratio of three and you have an overpair, you generally should be looking to get all the money in. You should assume that like you're, you're going to be playing for stacks. I would have felt better about it if I had been the one betting rather than the one facing a check raise, but I don't think you're wrong to decide, you know, I'm probably going to be going with this hand even when I get check raised. So I think then the, the like question that can follow from that or the frustration that can follow from that is, well, if I'm just going to stack off with aces every single time that I three bet, I mean, if I'm always going to stack off, like aces is always going to be an overpair, I'm always going to stack off because the stack to pot ratio is low, aren't I making it profitable then for my opponent to call with pocket fives? I mean, he only has to call 5k more, he's getting 60k from my stack plus the pot. If he makes a set, it sounds like I'm giving him a pretty good deal when he has pocket fives. Um, you are. The thing is, he doesn't know that you have pocket aces, and you shouldn't always have aces here, um, nor should you always have ace-king or some other like extremely strong hand. Right? You should be three-betting enough hands from the button that your opponent can't just treat it as a given that he's definitely going to stack you when he flops a set. That doesn't necessarily mean his call is bad, but I mean, so for one thing, you don't know that he has pocket fives. I mean, some of the things that you're doing when you check raise with aces are, sorry, when you three-bet with aces are, you know, you are trying to keep in the pot certain hands like as, as Santiago mentioned, uh, ace king, king queen, um, I guess like pocket queens even. I mean, I don't know how likely he is to like play those this way. Maybe they show pre flop, but you know there are lots of different hands your opponent could have, and you're not going to be able to make you're not going to be able to play perfectly against all of them. And so you're taking taking a line that's profitable against many other parts of of your opponent's range may mean that you're not going to win the maximum from this player's small pairs, and that's not the end of the world. But ideally, you, you know, you even if you are going to stack off with aces, I mean, you could, for all your opponent knows, you have queens or ace-queen or some other hand that, you know, at least on this flop, will not necessarily be putting your entire stack in. So it's not like he can just assume that he's always going to stack. I mean, he got lucky not just to flop a set, but also that you happen to have a hand at the top of your range that you could play a big pot with. And when your opponents get lucky, they're going to win big pots from you. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that you did anything wrong. So let's come around. So I think pre-flop is like totally fine, uncontroversial, exactly what I would have done. Um, we come to the flop. Stack to pot ratio is pretty low. And there's 17.5K in the pot. 
Our hero chooses to bet 12k, which I do think is on the large side considering the low stack to pot ratio and the fact that there's a lot of hands on this board that are pretty static, including aces. So hands like aces, ace-king, pocket-kings, the flop again is king-8-5-2-10, um, even pocket-8s could, could possibly be in your button three betting range. These are all hands that are like, not only are they extremely strong on the flop, they're going to be extremely strong on you know, virtually any turn card or maybe even any turn card. They're still going to be very strong hands. So these are not hands that are real strongly incentivized to put a bunch of money into the pot right away. These are hands that can um, continue to, can, like if even if your objective is get all the money in, which it should be with all those hands, I mean, you should be looking to put the rest of your money in here. because um, And the reason for that is that there's a lot of second best hands that your opponent will have incentive to pay you off with. Even if you're going to put all the money in, you don't necessarily have to start with a, um, so this is about like a two-thirds pot, see that on, on the flop, and this is a size that'll set you up maybe even to just shove the turn, but I don't know that you need to do that. Like I think that you could instead go for a smaller CBET, something like 6K, and then you know a somewhat uh, similarly sized turn bet, like similar fraction of the pot on the turn, and then shoving the river. So you, know, you, you have this option of maybe using a bet size that enables you to split the betting across three streets. And the goal there is not to give yourself room to get away in case your opponent flopped a set. Like, I think you should be going broke with aces. The goal of using that smaller size is to entice your opponent to continue along with more hands that are second best to yours. By using that smaller size, you can represent a weaker range. And in fact, if I were, you know, semi-bluffing or, or protection betting, whatever you want to call it, when you have a hand like um, ace-queen or like also pocket nines or pocket tens, I think could use a bet size like this. So you can just represent more different kinds of hands. You could legitimately have more different kinds of hands with that smaller bet size. Um, I think that there really are not a lot of hands that are that are strongly incentivized to use this larger C-bet size. Um, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if a solver did sometimes use this larger size of pocket aces. This is like a, a, an especially good hand for using a bigger size because it's a very strong hand that also unblocks top pair. So I don't think there's like a big mistake, but I do think if you were just going to choose one size for your entire range, I think you'd probably prefer to choose a smaller size in this situation because it is a fairly static situation and a fairly low SPR and both of those things and you're in position, all those things are going to incentivize you using a smaller CVET strategy. And essentially the way you can think about this is that this is like your compensation for the times you do stack off two pocket fives, the times that you, you lose your stack to pocket fives. It's okay to lose a big pot to your opponent's stronger hands. You just want to make sure that you're also in a position to win a big pot from the bottom of their range. Like you're getting compensated for the times you run into a better hand. Poker is not about being sure you have the best hand or about getting, a, getting away every time you're behind. It's just about making sure that you are getting compensated for the risk that you're taking. That the risk of putting your stack in here is that you might be stacking off to a set. And so you want to make sure you're playing your hand in a way that gives you the best opportunity to um, also win a stack from weaker hands that your opponent might hold. The other thing that I want to address here is when Santiago says that um, he feels like he has to either fold or go all in. Right, that, um, I, the way he says it is, if I call, I will be pot committed. So I start thinking about folding or going all in. Calling was not an option. And... I don't necessarily think going all in is, is bad here with aces, but I do think that that's, um, I think that's not the best way of, of thinking about your options here. So it, it doesn't follow from, if I call and pot committed, therefore I, I must fold or go all in. Like that, that just doesn't follow. Um, 
you are getting an extremely good price. So because this check raise is very small, you are getting a very good price. And so there are reasons why you might want to call this raise with hands that you would not go all in with. Um, that could even include weaker hands, like hands like pocket tens or pocket nines. Uh, the reason to call with those hands would be to avoid giving your opponent a very cheap bluff. So if you were concerned, essentially what's happening here, <clears throat> that after you bet your 12k, there's 29.5k in the pot, your opponent is only risking 25k on this raise. So if you're concerned about the possibility that he might be bluffing, which is not really something that Santiago is considering, um, and, and maybe rightfully so, it might be that exploitatively this player is not going to be bluffing much in this situation. I mean, the, the weakest hand that Santiago, Santiago is considering possible for the villain here are, are flush draws. But the truth is, if you were to fold more than half of your range to this bet, um, it would be profitable for your opponent to do this with any two cards. He wouldn't need to have a flush draw or any kind of coordination with the board whatsoever. So there's some reason why you might think... Um, if, if you're concerned that if you don't want to make the exploitative assumption this is not going to be a bluff, then you may want to call here with some hands that are not necessarily going to be playing for stacks. Right? You don't want to just pretend, even though your opponent actually risked 25k, just pretend that they risked 55k. That's giving them way too much fold equity. That's way, way more fold equity beyond what they've paid for. Um, so there are reasons why you might want to call here with some hands that you um, that, that would not be strong enough to go all in with. And again, the reason then why you would do that with aces is to play the aces in a way that's consistent with other kinds of hands that you might also have. So, you know, going all in here is kind of a fine thing to do with, with aces, but is not what you'd want to do with very many other hands, uh, and in particular, not with other types of hands. Like you might do with other strong hands. I can't think of too many like weak hands that you'd want to go up. Maybe like ace queen of spades, where, where you have uh, a, a flush draw, a, a big flush draw, but there, you wouldn't really want to do this with like nines or something. So I think part of the problem of going all in is you're making it sort of obvious what your hand is and it ends up becoming pretty easy for your opponent to play well. Some people might even fold king-queen in this spot, just figuring that you have ace-king and aces way more than you have flush draws, and they might not be wrong about that. So this again is a way of, it's not about saving money the times you have a set. You should be losing all your money to a set, it is about making sure that you're also going to win the maximum from other hands in your opponent's range to compensate you for the times that you run into the set. Uh, the last thing, I don't think the turbo structure really has anything to do with this, um, to the extent that that would be relevant. I think most people worry way too much about that in general, but to the extent that that would be relevant, it would be a question of, you know, is this, it may be a, a, a plus EV spot, but not one that's worth risking your tournament life on or something. That's the only time that this would come up, is if, if you were thinking in terms of, I, I believe that it is profitable to get all in here, but I think the edge is small enough that I'd rather not risk my elimination, so you know I, I will fold and wait for a better spot. Then the structure of the tournament becomes relevant because that gives you some idea of how likely are you to encounter a better spot. But first, you have to determine how good is this spot. Right Before you, you start thinking about, can I wait for a better spot, you have to get a sense of how good is this spot first. And I think a lot of people skip straight to that second point of just sort of like, well, 
either it's a turbo and I'm not going to find a better spot, therefore I'll go with it, which, I mean, if it's not a good spot, if this is a negative EV spot, then you should fold whether or not it's a turbo. I mean, if you think your opponent's min check raising range is just extremely strong, um, then the the fact that it's a turbo structure is not going to make it profitable to get it in here. Um, The the speed at which the blinds go up is not going to increase the, uh, it's not going to suddenly give you the best hand where where you wouldn't otherwise. So I think that's just kind of not something you need to worry about too much. I I think you really want to focus on just uh, from, from a chip accumulation perspective, is it more profitable to go with this hand or not? And uh, I would not really bring the speed of the tournament into it. Uh, all right, I think that's a pretty thorough coverage. Thank you, Santiago, for writing. Uh, last thing for everyone listening, if you enjoy these strategy segments and want to hear a lot more of Carlos and me talking poker strategy, you also want to support the podcast while you're at it, which we always appreciate, uh, please do subscribe at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. That will get you uh, daily strategy segments three or five times a week, depending on uh, what you would prefer. And uh, so that's just, you know, every day of the week, you could hear Carlos and me talking poker strategy in your ears. And now you have the treat of listening to us talk to Ed Miller. Please enjoy. Yo, hey Miller, how are you doing? Good. You look good. You look honestly younger than the last time I saw you. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got my 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 uh, gray beard betrays that, but yeah, I'll oh, take uh, it. I guess you're just in shadows because it doesn't look gray for me. Yeah, I am a little bit. I am. I'm. I'm. <laughs> I'm. My. I have a one of these ring lights here. Oh. To give me. Yeah. But yeah, this this room is like particularly dark. And you've got a full head of hair. That's good. You're doing I well. I do. Yes, I, yeah. I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm 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 good on that front. Um, you do know Carlos, right? You guys have met before. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was with you and I met him. Yeah, I, mean, I, I figured you would have met at, at our uh, at, at our meetups or whatever. I just wanted I didn't want to be a bad host if if you didn't know each other. And yeah, I was just like okay. Um, I feel Ed. This feels like a special privilege. Like I feel like you're not uh, not doing too many poker podcasts anymore. Thank you for taking it um, on for us. Yeah, no, <laughs> you're right. I'm not. Well, I haven't done that much poker or anything. To be honest with you. Uh, yeah, that so, includes the podcast. What what are you doing these days? So I am at the moment the CEO of a uh, sports betting software technology company called Deck Prism. Correct. Yeah. All right, and what does that uh, entail? Yeah. So um, I basically I got into it. I got into it um, in 2015, uh, which was the year that my last book came. My last poker book came out. Um, and, uh, I was, I got into the daily fantasy stuff, uh, cause it was like blowing up then. And I was like, oh, I can get edges in this easily. I kind of had an angle and, and everything. I remember so I, you I, sitting at the thinking poker meetup in, um, in the gold coast and you were, uh, plugging away on, on some sort of, um, I think it was like an algorithm that you were using for your, for your daily fantasy stuff that you had. Your little well, there you go. That was, that was, there. that's, that's the origin story of this whole, this whole thing. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so, you know, it was, uh, I mean, I, it, you know, I, I was right about that, I, I would say. Um, there were definitely, like, huge edges to, to mine in that. Um, I did that for a while, and I sort of bumped into an old poker friend from, really from 20 years ago, like, from the very beginning when I moved to Las Vegas, 2003, 2004, um, named Matt Davidow, and, uh, he kind of had left poker. He did the poker thing too, you know, back then. And then he did the online. Say he, I remember he tells the story where, they, they, he tells a story about how this is like I don't know, like like fifteen, sixteen years ago that there was a, a two plus two meetup. It was like one of the early two plus two meetups, and he realized like all of the, sit and go grinders were gonna be like having beers at some Vegas casino like at a specified time and he was like, this is gonna be the softest time to play poker like ever and he like absolutely crazy he said he, he won like a hundred thousand that day uh, wow yeah anyway uh but and i just thought that was funny but anyway the, he he, he kind of left poker early for sports betting stuff uh, around there um you know and he kind of worked on that and, and basically focused on kind of the analytics side of sports betting, um, which is really like, I think a lot of people, there's sort of a, a lot of mythos surrounding um, sports betting, like uh, the, the sharps and the, all that stuff. And uh, it, it's really a much smaller world than, than you might imagine or than people kind of make it out to be. Uh, there's not that many people who are really really pouring a lot of work and effort into trying to do do a good job of the analytics, try to really make good betting lines. So, you know, so that was kind of his thing for a while. And uh, he kind of recruited me in 2015 after we bonded over the Daily Fantasy stuff uh, to uh, work on uh, models to price uh, sports during the game. So, like, the, the first sport we I worked on with him was uh, NFL um, so the idea is basically, you know, at any point in an NFL football game, you know, make, uh, you know, basically come up with your best estimate percentages of, you know, any point spread, you know, covering any point spread at any any point, any total, any, any you know, spread handicap. Um, so that, that was kind of how I got my start was, was building that model with him. Um, and then... Uh, that was successful. Um, we we kind of pointed that at the existing in-play betting markets for NFL, and so we started making more sports like uh, baseball and you know, college football, NBA basketball, college basketball, etc. And this is something that you're doing just to place bets on your own behalf. This isn't the company yet, right? Well, not... this is this is. I want to be clear. It's more complicated than what you. It's pointed at the betting side. I mean, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't. Be personally placing it's complicated sort of legally but okay. um but they, but yes it was these models this analytics was pointed at uh, at, at people betting into betting markets with the analytics right Correct. so th th this isn't yeah. like a, a service that a where where the, the book is hiring you to help them correct correct okay. yes correct correct yeah yeah there wasn't really there, there wasn't really much um call for that prior to so in in 2018 i think it was uh i don't know how much of your audience is following this um but the Supreme Court, so so there was a federal law, this is sort of an interesting legal thing, there was a federal law that got passed 
um, called uh, PASPA. I forget what it stands for exactly. But uh, basically the law said uh, sports betting is illegal in every state except for four. <laughs> that was the federal law. <laughs> so it's basically like they basically like grandfathered in the four states that had some sort of sport. Nevada obviously had the most robust sports betting. I think Delaware had something. Montana had something. I don't know. But basically, Nevada was the only real full-fledged state that had legal sports betting. And this this federal law basically tried to tried to grandfather in those states and then said nobody else can have it. Um, which <laughs> I remember when I, <laughs> I found out about that law, I was like, that's, is that kosher? <laughs> like, can the federal government do that? Well, apparently the federal government can't just do that. <laughs> because what happened was New Jersey actually um, uh, challenged that law uh, legally and it made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And New Jersey ended up winning. Uh, and the Supreme Court actually scrapped the entire law, said this is not a, a constitutional law. Um, so, and and that was it. Like, that was just the law that prohibited states from passing legal sports betting got scrapped by the Supreme Court. The federal government didn't kind of do anything to replace it with anything or, or whatever. And so basically, at that point, that left it open for each state to decide if they wanted to legalize sports betting basically under whatever terms or conditions they might want to. So uh, since that point, I think something like 30 states have done it. Um, I was going to say, I went to, um, I, I've not been to live casinos much in the last two years, but um, I, I did go to Maryland Live the last time that I was there, and I could see where the sports book, you know, they're, uh, they were about to put it in. I, I think it may be in now. Um, yep. it, it had been a bar for a long time, and then once I saw it, and I was like, "Oh, this was the plan was for this to be a sports book all along." They were just like, right. "Waiting, just like the, the shape of it." Oh, like it all made sense. I was like, "Oh, this was." <laughs> yeah, they were they were ready. Yeah. 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 So I mean, you know, I I, I can't say I, I was too surprised. So so what happened is, is Matt and I and and you know some of the other people that work you know on, in our little group, um, kind of had a powwow. I think that day or like really a couple days after. And basically said, okay, we've got this. So, so at the time, what we had were, um, we were essentially huge fish in a very small pond, for lack of a better term. I mean, we were definitely like, I mean, our live, you know, in-play uh, betting models were clearly the cream of the crop, you know, for lack of a better term. They, they were clearly the kind of dominant pricing force in the existing markets, but... but the caveat to that is the existing markets weren't very large. Um, so, you know, there just wasn't, you know, there was, there was a very fixed upside to how much that was worth, you know, pointed at the betting side, right? Because you basically, I mean, you only can make money gambling if people want to gamble with you. Really. Right. This is like probably a thing where the, the books are aware that they don't have particularly rigorous well, lines on this. And so they're limiting sure. how much you can bet on there, right? Right, and I could kind of go into more. I mean, there, I could go into more detail on that, but a hundred percent, that's that that's the case. Mm. And um, yeah, and so so we said, well, what we think we could do is we could take this these models that we have. We 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 could, you know, put some extra work in them to make them more robust in certain ways, and and to to kind of flesh out their capabilities to basically make it so that we can make uh, many different. You know, I, I mean, you know, sports books will offer not just a single line. Like, it's not like at any point you could just bet minus six and a half, take it or leave it. They're, you know, modern sports books have 
dozens of options simultaneously that you could bet. You could bet on the first quarter, the first half, what team's going to score next. You know, you could bet on uh, any of 10 different point spreads or more, 10 different totals. You could bet on, I mean, you know, they, they, you know, they try to offer, I think they offer too many bets. To be honest, it's kind of like that, you know, it's like that. The, it, I, I think of it like a, they, I call it a menu, like a betting menu, and it's like a restaurant menu, you know, and that, that restaurant where it's like the Cheesecake Factory menu, <laughs> and it's a book, and you're like, okay, this is this is too many options, you know, versus like your McDonald's menu, which, you know, I, I think, you know, I, everyone knows where I'm going with that, and that I, I think the same idea kind of applies um, to sports betting, too. But, but notwithstanding... The, the current ethos of the industry is to have the cheesecake factory menu. <laughs> so, so if you if you want to if you want to launch a business and sell it to actual people who actually do business, then you kind of have to, you know, at least for now, you know, offer a cheesecake factory menu. So so that's what we did. So so we we basically built out a bunch of new tools and software to enable to turn the, the kind of analytical models you know, that were aimed at betting into full-fledged uh, lines-making software. Um, and, yeah, and uh, that's what we did. We did it for all our, our main sports. And and our, our business thesis was that, you know, again, these markets are not very big. Where the market's not big, I think you hit kind of the nail on the head there, which is that, um, I mean, there are several reasons why the markets aren't big, but one is if the... the the sports books don't have confidence in the lines that they're offering. If they think that, you know, even, you know, a relatively informed better can just watch the lines and pick off the good bets, which is basically the status quo, then they're going to be extremely defensive and protective about who they offer those bets to, which is, which is again, the status quo. So, so our thesis was, well, if we could solve that problem, if we can basically create, I mean, you can't create unbeatable bets, particularly, you know, you can't, you know, the kitchen sink, you can't make unbeatable. But you can make, you know, th there's there's a lot of, you could do a huge improvement to the, the current situation and essentially invite an entire market. You could basically say, okay, now here's something that's strong enough where come and get it, you know. And, um, and, and that was basically our business thesis was that we could expand the... Uh, ability of of sports books to accept these types of bets uh, from larger groups of people, from bigger limits, from you know, and and basically increase the velocity of of the betting that they accept. And that's been successful. Like you've you've had that effect. Well, I I would say we're we're not really there yet i i would say w where we are as a business is we we really just so we went live with our first sportsbook customer uh right after the sports came back during the the pandemic so um we actually we actually i think our first deal that we made was like march 2020 <laughs> 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 we were gonna do baseball and then and then oops <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all in on live sports <laughs> <laughs> yeah so anyway, uh, that was good timing. It kind of worked out, but we actually went live really um, with our first customer in July. Um, our first customer, uh, you know, was kind of, we viewed it like kind of as a soft launch. Like, um, you know, it, it was, I, I guess, kind of a small operator 
it, they're in kind of an out of the way jurisdiction, you know, um, like you can't, it's not an offshore, like you can't bet it from the U.S. or anything. It's in a small country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our, our thesis was, oh, nobody sharp will be. <laughs> well, it turns out, it turns out that if you are offering free money to people through the, the bugs and errors in your brand new uh, service that you're offering, that, that people will, <laughs> will find free money um no matter where in the world you are so but anyway it, it, they didn't hurt us too bad so it was, it was it was a pretty good soft one so it was a good uh it was a good experience we definitely learned a lot during that period and and you know shored up the the big you know glaring errors and problems with our product during that period and then um about we went live with our first customer in the u.s uh, a few months after that we were live with a with a sports book called it, the Circa is is the brand here is the brand. Um, they have a a large, relatively new casino in downtown Las Vegas, um, which is I, you know, is 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 they have like the world's biggest sports book, and uh, it's a cool place. Um, but anyway, they they uh, they also offer sports betting in Colorado, um, so that is where we had our first U.S. customer was um, at Circa's. Um, Colorado, we're not licensed in Nevada for various legal reasons. It's basically incredibly expensive to get licensed in Nevada um, versus Colorado. So, um, so we got our Colorado license and uh, we signed up that customer. So we do that, and then um, in September, like this past beginning of football season, we went live with um, Pinnacle Sports, which is a, a well-known brand. I was say, I've, in, I've in heard sports. of that one. Yeah, so they're they're you know they're basically the old, um, you know they're they're known as the sports book that tries to make markets for everybody. They don't kick anyone out. They let everyone bet. You know they don't screw around with they they, they don't they're not defensive with the way and you know I can if you're interested I could kind of explain what defensive means. But like they're they're not defensive with the way they accept bets like other sports books are. Um, they accept bets from known winners they you know etc um so this was really the the acid test for what we built really this was this was the big leagues um and uh yeah and it was uh you know i i i don't want to say it was a hundred percent smooth sailing i mean the best betters at the world were trying to beat our brains in (laughs) and uh you know and and they got us a few for sure um but overall it was i think really successful and i think you know you know, it certainly helped us um, it basically shore up our uh, software technology, you know, much hardened it. Um, and and what we have now, I think, is really strong. Um, and I think we're just now kind of today at the point where what we have is truly strong enough to deliver on that promise of, okay, let's, let's sell this into people who want to make real markets. You know, because again, Pinnacle, for instance, you know, they don't have... Like we do U.S. sports, but they don't accept U.S. customers, right? So there's there's you know there's a huge disconnect there with finding fight you know there's just people are not interested in betting college football outside of the U.S. and Pinnacle doesn't do business in the U.S. So there's only so so many customers who are going to be interested in in betting. Um, but yeah, so I think our our product is is currently at the point where it's really a a fairly mature robust product that any sports book could could pick up and 
if they wanted to offer, you know, high limits, if they wanted to offer, you know, I think the cleanest customer experience, they wanted to, you know, offer their betting, you know, again, not defensively like everyone else does. Um, it's it's ready to go. And defensively, uh, well, I guess you, you said you would explain if I was interested. So I, will, yeah. I, I hereby declare my interest. Okay. So, so think about like, what, what would you do? Let's say, let's say you were like offering prop betting to the world and people could basically come up to you and offer you bets and they basically, and they, they tell you what the terms are and, and your job is to say you want it or not. And, um, and then the smartest people in the world uh, you know, it's basically you're at the World Series of Poker and you've got every sharp poker player in the world and they formed a line. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they've all got their, they've all got the bet they want to make with you, right? How many of those bets are you going to take? I wouldn't even make bets with Nate because I knew right. that he would. <laughs> right. So, so you're going to, you're going to, you're going to basically turn those bets down just on principle. Right. right. <laughs> anyway, I'm not even going to evaluate it. It's like, I, if you're, if you're trying to bet me this, like you win, like, no, thank you. So that is essentially what the defensive measures that the sports books take are. Right. So, so what they do is they, they, they profile their customers. So if you sign up a new uh, account with a sports book, um, they're going to put a lot of effort. They put a lot of technology and manpower into um, into basically trying to figure out if you're sharp or not. Um, the moment they decide you're sharp, they drastically reduce how willing they are to take your bets. Mm. Um, they do this by cutting your limits to literally a dollar, uh, by putting your bets on delay. So another tactic they use is um, they will um, let you bet, but your bet gets put in a queue and has to sit there for 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds. And they basically wait out the 30 seconds and then they decide if they want your bet. So this is a way that they can protect themselves against uh, people who um, are trying to front run information. Um, You know, in in live betting, they use it to protect against people who are trying to front run the literal events in the game um, or line moves at other casinos. Um, So that's a defensive tactic they use. So they literally it's, it's like if. It's like if the stock, it's like if you put in your, it, 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 this practice, I think, is, is fundamentally unfair, by the way, right? Like, like because you can't, you, you can't take your bet back in those 30 seconds. So, right, it's, like, it's, it's an it, it's, advantage it's, that they have. That. Right, right. Like, like, let's say you were trying to buy a stock, and the way you had to buy a stock was you had to put in your offer for the stock, and then it got locked in for 30 seconds. And then the broker could decide whether they wanted to honor your offer or not after 30 seconds, right? So now they could just say, no, thank you. And then you just, no harm, no foul. But what is the selection bias? You're, you're going to get your order filled when it's, you know, gone against you basically, yeah, right? I mean, and, and the same reason why if you're selling action in a tournament, you can't decide two hours into the tournament whether or not you want to accept uh, you know, the right. offer of a person now, who wanted to buy it. Right, right, exactly. Now, to be fair, the sports books are, are not that rapacious they're not they're not i i don't think they're like sometimes this this practice is 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 kind of people put the worst 
spin on it and they say, oh, the sports books are, this is like what you were saying would be truly rapacious, right? But the, the sports books will say, okay, well, but we don't lock you into your bad price. We'll actually give you the better price. Like if the price has moved in your favor, oh, we'll see. give you the current better price. But that's still not fair, <laughs> right? Because they're selectively denying you all the good bets. That's right. what they're doing. They're saying they're saying, yeah, we won't force you to take a ten percent bad bet. You'll get a four percent bad bet instead. But you'll never get your your good bet. Right. right? Is or almost never. Right. So, um, right. So anyway. Um, now the books think this is completely fair because they think every every bet should be four percent bad for you. So how are they doing you anything wrong to make sure all your bets are four percent bad, right? That's that's kind of their mindset. Um, anyway, uh, I you know so um, so th- these are the the defensive tactics. They, they lower limits. They put you on delays. They they get really selective about what you want to bet or not. Like they just they just selectively accept your bets or not accept them. Um, you know, without, they don't have to give you any, uh, explanation, you know, they can just say, nope, you know, and, uh, yeah, and so all that, those are kind of the defensive measures they use, um, and, and to some extent, they use those measures on all customers, like, like I was saying for, for the, during the game betting, uh, a lot of operators will put every customer, even the total casual, you know, not trying, you know, (laughs) drunk just trying to get his ten dollars down person will put him on a you know three to six second delay on the in play because they're that worried about the the quality so you were saying that the books are are to some degree uh you know imposing these measures on even very casual yeah, letters yeah exactly and 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 what it amounts to is that if you try to bet during the game like an in play bet the the rejection rates on the bets even for you know just your 98% customer who's just trying to, you know, have a beer and watch the game and get some, some bet down, is something like 20%, which is, or, or can be that high, which is obviously a terrible customer experience. Like, if you're just, you know, trying to watch a football game and bet your bet at, you know, whatever, Fan Kings or <laughs> whatever, you know, and, uh, you know, and and it says, you know, $10 and it goes, wheel, 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 rejection. You're just like, what? <laughs> you know, and you don't understand why, and it's just—I mean, it's just a terrible customer experience. It just—it just sucks all the way around. So it's a bad know, experience if you do understand why, also, because then it's just like well, it's even worse. Yeah, <laughs> the same reason people don't like playing in games with nets, where it's just <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's an even worse experience if you understand why. But yeah, so so those are those are what the defensive measures are for, and 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 so again, our thesis is, you know you know, the, 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 the kind of where the industry should go is to try to absolutely, I mean, the industry, especially the smart, the, you know, the kind of more progressive, um, you know, industry leader type companies, like I, I just, you know, kind of named on FanDuel a little bit. FanDuel definitely, like the people at FanDuel definitely understand, and they've actually made statements to this effect, that the goal is to get the defensive measures like out of their product as absolutely as much as possible. Um, so they understand that, and they also understand that, you know, what they need to do to do that is is basically uh, do what we're doing, which is is have strong um, lines making. You know, in real time, it all has to be in real time. You know, it just you have to get the error rate on your lines making down absolutely as low as possible um, to offer that experience. And and Fanduel is trying to do that 
you know, in-house. Basically, they're a huge company and they're trying to, you know, with their own people and their own employees trying to build essentially their version of, of kind of our service, um, but just for their company internally. Um, whereas, you know, our, the value that I think we offer is that, you know, we're a three-part, uh, third-party service and a sportsbook that doesn't have, you know, there's only, it, it's really a very limited um, set of uh, domain knowledge, right? Like, it's a very, very, very specific skill set to do this right, I would say. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these people just, there just aren't that many people who are going to be able to build this uh, service that we're building uh, successfully, you know, and, and, you know, meanwhile, there's, you know, 10 plus different companies that all want to offer sports betting, you know, for real. Um, so I, so I basically think that, that our market is going to be, you know, the, you know, maybe operators three through 10 are going to end up deciding, you know what, this is, this is a better, better to just use a third party service to solve this problem for us Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, there's reasons why they don't at the moment. Um, there's, there's, it's very complicated. There's politics and there's, you know, as you might imagine, a lot of these country companies are European and so they have long-standing relationships with other European companies as opposed to like, you know, loudmouth American <laughs> jerks like us, <laughs> you know, and, and so forth. So it's, 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 but, but that's the business thesis is basically that this is, this is a core part and will be an increasingly important part of running a competitive sports book, especially as the years go on. And it's also a very hard problem to solve. And most people are going to end up wanting to hire a third party solution for this problem. So that's, I would say the business thesis and, you know, so far so good, but we haven't really gotten to the exciting part yet as far as seeing whether that thesis is right. I was curious way back when you mentioned um, that you, you had kind of the, the sharpest betters in the world lining up to try to take advantage of your, uh, you know, any potential flaws in, in your program, just if you have a sense of who those people are, the way like, you know, when you're playing poker, you kind of know who are the, even so like somewhere else in the world, you kind of know, like, who are these other best players in the world you might be playing against even when, when you're playing online? I mean, are, is it just like anonymous or do you actually have a sense? It, of- it, it, so it, 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 it varies depending on the jurisdiction and depending on the operator. But I would say, you, you know, I, I have to be a little careful about what I say, but um, we know it, it's it's. We often are a little bit in the dark. That's what I would say about, about you know, the, the operators. You know, because the operators have their own... They, they don't necessarily want to share all their information. They, they want to share just enough with us to help us do our job, but they don't want to give us extra information just for fun, right. is what I would say. Yeah. I mean, my, my understanding, having never placed a sports bet in my life, um, my understanding is that at least for sort of traditional sports betting, the needing to bet through proxies and things, I guess, to get around these like defensive measures and to avoid moving the lines. I get the sense that for like a Harlabos Vulgaris or however you pronounce his name, like that was a big part of the um, the job was you know, finding ways of placing your bet without making too clear what you were doing. For sure. I mean, it, it, it's, it's you know, for people who want to be on the betting side um, in a serious way, that's the huge problem is finding people willing to gamble with you. That's fundamentally the problem. And and the, the short and long answer is you have to use misdirection and disguise what you're doing 18 million different ways uh, to try to convince people to gamble with you when you have a consistent edge. 
which I guess is fairly similar to like advantage blackjack players, where the the actual card counting is not really uh, the impression I get. The actual card counting is not so much the challenge of the job as the getting away with the card counting is is the real right. Job. Yeah, you, you exactly. You have to find you have to find you have to sufficiently disguise what you're doing so that people don't you know figure out that you're beating them. Yeah, you know that's 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 it. Yeah. Carlos, I don't mean to dominate things. If you were, uh, if there's anything you were looking to get in with, yeah. What's up, Carlos? How you doing? <laughs> hey, Ed, I'm, I'm I'm good, man. I'm good. I got I got some like um, thoughts that are like I want I trying to understand this through the lens of poker. Uh, I'm afraid to like you know throw any of these out because I don't want to like because uh, I know Ed. You, you scared me when you said that you have to be legally careful. With, with you, you had to be careful what you said legally. Uh, well, so I'll throw these out. Yeah, I mean, a, just to be clear on that, a, I'm the CEO of a company, and there's just legal, you know, whatever that goes with that. It's a heavily regulated industry. I have to, you know, we have to abide by all the regulations in every jurisdiction we do business in. And, you know, beyond that, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, that's the answer is it's, it's regulated, and so there's a lot of laws to follow. That's the basically the idea. Gotcha. Yep. Gotcha. So, so obviously you will um, choose not to uh, respond to any of this. <laughs> yeah, sure, for sure. For sure. For uh, sure. So, so my understanding, if I if I understand this correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, what you're doing is basically trying to help these books set the line at a point where it's um unexploitable or as unexploitable as possible correct so you're kind of, so like if we want to use a poker analogy you're kind of like like ed solver that's like the the software right. that the books are using to get themselves closer to gto which is a an allowed defensive mechanism versus um good players as opposed to I shouldn't say allow. Uh, um, allowed is not the right word because the defensive measures that they're currently taking are allowed. Obviously, they're doing it, but they're frowned upon by the by the public. But if they just get their lines solid, that's not frowned upon by the public. So you're right. trying to help them defend themselves by teaching them um, this, for lack of a better term, GTO strategy uh, against these sharps. Uh, without having to just refuse to play against the sharks. Exactly, I think that's that's a pretty good analogy for what we're trying to do. Yeah, we're trying we're trying to basically harden up the strategy that the the operators use to offer bets to the to their customers. Okay, okay. See that thinking about it from that point of view definitely helps me understand it a lot better. Yep. Yeah. We we basically want to say go nuts. You know, you want to. You want to go all in, go all in. You want to fold, you want to fold, go go nuts. Make whatever choices you want, and and you won't, you know, pick us apart. Because the, the hardest part is right. Like it's it's like this comes up all the time. I mean, there's all these little angles, especially once you start offering, you know, first quarter bets or third quarter bets. I mean, there's, I mean, you name it. Think about all the different angles that can come up with, you know, oh, they're gonna rest this player for the first three minutes of the third quarter. I mean. That does that doesn't have much effect on the full game bet, but it has a huge effect on the third quarter bet, and and there's just there's just all these little spots where you know it's just you could just get picked apart if you have a systematic flaw in your model or the way that you build the lines, and so you know our problem, our you know 
our challenge is we have to a build the models and and, and build our trading infrastructure as as airtight as possible and then you know when people do find the holes or do people do find you know little spots to exploit and and get some good bets in we have to identify the people that are doing that and you know try to reverse engineer what the heck they're doing and then you know get it into our model and that's a lot of i mean that's my job i mean i i'm i i have other jobs i go on zoom calls and i you know do ceo stuff but like my core job is is basically to try to plug leaks in in our model and 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 try to you know i i work with matt on that matt says hey you know we need to look at you know this part of this game you know we don't have this quite right because xyz and so and so is you know we we think we're getting under bets here we're whatever right and then and then we have to look at it we have to look at data we have to look at the model we have to look at the bets we're taking we have to make educated guesses about a whether they're right we we also don't necessarily always think they're right like sometimes people think they have an edge and don't <laughs> you may be aware of that <laughs> yep. you know so there's definitely people that you know are firing away on something and you know and they're convinced they have an edge and then we have to go back and look at what we have and we have to decide whether we think they're right or not and sometimes we think they're not right and we say keep on going <laughs> it's great this, this, this fish is willing to play four tables of 25 50 heads up for hours at right. a time it's fantastic right, <laughs> right. so it's yeah it's, it's it's just like that it's just like that that whenever you know when you have to take that seriously i mean you absolutely have to take that seriously but sometimes you know you think you have it in good you know and and sometimes you think you have it in good and then you realize (laughs) no actually you you know did that wrong you know you you evaluated that wrong the first time and they actually do have you on in this specific spot you know you look at the you look at the full spot and and don't realize no they're actually just hitting you on a subdivision of that spot and anyway it's 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 definitely a cat and mouse game to do what we're trying to do but um it's fun for sure well, it seems tough because, I mean, if, if I'm understanding correctly, you know, you, the, your, I guess your customers are offering thousands of bets and a sharp player could just sort of specialize in one thing. Like, yep. I'm very good at, you know, getting these third quarter bets or whatever. And you have to yep. be able to set a line good enough that they're not, you know, a specialist is not beating you, even though you're doing this across many different types of bets. Yep. That's, that's the idea. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and we have our own, we have our own ways of trading through that. Like, like the, the the good thing that we have at our disposal is is we don't have to keep the price. We get to move our price based on the bet we take. So if someone wants to bet a third quarter and you know we think they're right, we just move the the line so that that they that we only offer one bet, right? So like, let's say you know let's say we offer a third quarter bet at forty eight percent or whatever, and some guy that we think has an edge takes it. Well, the next time we price it at fifty percent, you know. Mm, so. You know, and then if they want to bet it again, then it's fifty-two percent. We keep moving until until they don't want to bet it anymore, and then and then we're done. You know, so we have that to our advantage. And that's a big advantage, right? Because you know, yeah, we get hit once, but we don't just get hit over and over and over again. But I, I can see why for a, a recreational better, this is a more fun experience than, and I'm, I imagine leads to more betting than just you know placing a bet in advance of the game and hoping it pays off. You know, it's something where you can sort of um, be responding in real time to things that happen 
in the game. I imagine it's both like more fun, but also maybe offers the illusion of having more of an edge. Uh, yep. In that, like, oh, you're like, oh, I have this new information. And it's like, oh, well, of course, the book also has that op- that information that you have. But <laughs> I-, I can imagine a lot of people thinking that they're like doing something smart. But oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna bet this third quarter line because they just said that they're going to be benching this player, and so. Well, and, and the thing is, they, they might have the edge. Like, <laughs> you, like I mean, you know, we aren't, I, I, you know, it, it, and there's existing services that offer these lines. And, and frankly, I mean, a lot of, especially for American sports, I mean, I, I hope I'm not too far out of line. A lot of what they do is substantially less sophisticated than what we're doing. So it's very pot like, like, for instance, baseball lines. I remember baseball lines used to be, like, if the starter got injured in the second inning, like, a lot of the in-play lines didn't account for that. So, like, you know, Max Scherzer starts a game, you know, and the, you know, whatever. The line is what it is with Max Scherzer, he, who's a very good pitcher if you don't follow baseball. I was say, Nate, Nate's not on the show anymore. you got to dumb yeah, it down. Yeah, so, anyway, you know, a very good pitcher starts the game, so the line is what it is, right? And then he gets he gets injured in the second inning. He's out, and they bred in. Brett Overholzer, who is, you know, the, I mean, no, if Brett Overholzer is watching, I'm sorry, you're a major league pitcher and I'm not, you know, <laughs> but whatever, you know, they bring in Brett Overholzer and, and he's, you know, not as good as, as Max Scherzer by a fair bit. And, you know, obviously that should have a, a, a substantial impact immediately on the betting line and, and, and you know, the, the, the solutions that some sports books were using were not even taking that in. Right, and that's obvious. Like you don't have to be some sharp, you know, uber sharp, you know, you know, number crunching wizard to notice. Hey, the line didn't move when Scherzer got injured and Brett Oberholzer came. Right, you don't have to. You know, this does not take a genius to figure this out. That this is a this this is a spot. So you know, obviously, we're trying to be smarter than that. We're definitely. I mean, we will be on top of that. You're not going to get that by us, but. Um, there potentially is stuff you could get by us. We're not, you know, especially with college basketball. I mean, this is college basketball time. It's about to be March Madness, you know. And again, we do the very best job we can. But there's like 300 something teams. I mean, if you if you want to really just deep dive on Abilene Christian and just know exactly what their player. I mean, I, I, I mean, you could probably get it. You know, I mean, I feel like this is. Um... I was giving you the hard time the one time you were on the show and we were talking about um, timeshares. Uh, and yep. now, now I feel like you're trying to rope in a bunch of people on like your Evelyn yeah, Christian not, line by, yeah. by pretending to be a fish. And well, the, the, so here's something, here's something I don't know. I mean, you, some of you may have picked up on this, some may have not, but a lot of the sports books are offering extremely generous marketing, right? And, and when poker, online poker boomed, there were a lot of people making, you know, six figures a year on online poker who were really terrible at the actual poker playing and were very good at the market dollar marketing dollar harvesting yeah getting all the like sign up bonuses term. and stuff yeah sign up bonuses there was a lot of rake back there were just a lot of deals that that if you were smart about the way to basically get the marketing dollars into your pocket you didn't actually have to be that great at the the gambling part you had to be serviceable. You had to be okay, but you know you didn't have to be the best in the world to. And 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 the the I, I will say that the sportsbook situation is is similar right now. There's definitely like I don't, you know, I I have my 
I, I'm kind of on two sides now. Like, I, I'm on the operator side, but I definitely still have my gambling friends on the gambling side, you know, and I kind of hear what they're doing as far as trying to get, um, you know, marketing dollars, really the marketing dollars into their into their pockets. And, and there's it's out there is what I would say right now. It's, it's definitely out there um, if you want to pursue that and you want to say, hey, I want to make some money, you know, off this sports betting boom. I don't really want to spend all my days and nights watching sports. I don't even like sports that much. Whatever. Um, there's definitely ways to take advantage of the the marketing stuff going on right now and, and make and make real, you know, meaningful money from that. So that's something I wanted to kind of mention too. Just you know, I can't I can't really go too much into detail. I, I'm not an expert on that. I haven't you know I as my role in the industry is not to do that. You know, I don't even sign. You know, I'm I mean these books are really going to be our customers and not trying to, you know, sign up accounts and beat them out of their money. Um, but it's out there if you, if you want to, for sure. I'm curious your thoughts on a kind of analogous poker situation, which is, um, I guess one I've, I've been in thinly veiled break. Uh, you know, I, I enter the main event and I sell some percentage of my action and, but I want to keep like a substantial, piece of myself so you know, I'm, I'm playing the tournament and i uh, have, have a decent chunk of myself but then i get to like day five and now my stack is like the, the the icm value of my stack is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and i might want to sell off some more of my action um i mean right. i probably could like talk to people but it's like you know i'm, I'm busy I'm, i want to focus on the things so, like i could maybe work out something with people who have already bought a piece or I know enough other like professional poker players, but like there doesn't seem to be a real robust market in this the way there is for staking. I mean, I, I don't know of anyone who who does this sort of thing. I don't really right. hear about this kind of thing happening. Um, it seems to me that it should. Uh, do you have any insight into like why there's not more of a market for like uh, selling action once you're already doing well in a tournament? I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of friction to that. There, there might be also. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a good. It's a good question. I mean, it, it does seem like there there should be. It, it definitely seems like there's, you know, money to be made by people who. I mean, I I remember, you know, and again, this is I haven't played a poker tournament in a long time, but, um, I mean, I definitely know that there's huge variances in risk tolerance, and some people are willing to give up enormous amounts of equity to try to lock in, you know, certain amounts of win. Um, I mean, it definitely seems like there would be a market for somebody willing to just buy all the risk. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's, I don't know that that's a good question is, is, is it's, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I, it seems like there should be right. I mean, at, at the very least, in like a multi-day tournament where where right. th where things are frozen for like twelve plus hours, right. there's plenty of time exactly. to figure out what the price. I mean, I understand like an online tournament, things are changing every second. Maybe there's not really an right. opportunity to like set the price. But even there, I mean, I feel like that kind of thing is happening with ghosting, like where people are just taking over someone else's account. Um, but like, I don't. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure looking that. for that. I just want like I just want someone to buy my risk, as you said, and like let me play for. You know, I wanted to play for fifty percent of myself, but like now that my stack is worth twenty times what it was at the start of the tournament i would actually only like to play for 10 percent of myself right yeah i don't know it's a good it's a good question i don't i don't know i mean you know i know there's um, obviously there's legal restrictions for for all that kind of stuff that that i don't know to what extent that that inhibits a marketplace like that from forming um you know and you know i yeah i don't know it's it's it's, it's an interesting question 
Um, I was also curious to get an update if, if you're up for talking about it. One of the previous times uh, that we were on the show, you uh, talked a lot about a uh, battle that you were having with the uh, foster care system in, in oh. Nevada. I was curious how your son's doing. He's good. He's, he just turned 12. He's, uh, he is enormous. He's, he's basically <laughs> as, as big. He's like, he's like five, six already. <laughs> he's 12 years old. He's going to be, I'm five, eight. So he's gonna <laughs> probably, he already wears a bigger shoe size than me. Um, yeah, he's good, man. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's good. And, and, you know, fortunately we haven't had any, um, we haven't had any cause to interact with the, the system really since, you know, we adopted him. Um, so it's been kind of 10 years out of that drama. Um, yes, it's, it's been a good experience. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely been extremely rewarding to be a parent. Um, you know, and, uh, I, I would recommend, you know, I mean, if, if you're, if you're willing to deal with some uncertainty and pain, um, I, I, I would recommend getting involved with, you know, the, the foster care system in, in your area. And, and cause obviously there's a ton of, tons of kids that need you know people to you know kind of step into their lives and and you know i think um you know again i you know i i think it's i mean i there were times there were times where when i was like am i am i doing the right thing for him I'm, am i really helping have i really is my intervention in his life has that actually made his life better i mean at this point i, I think the answer is kind of a slam dunk yes like i do you know i definitely think that that our our contribution to his life has definitely uh, made a, a, a pretty significantly positive impact on on the course of his life. You know, he still has. I mean, his, his birth family is still in his life. He visits them. He's got you know siblings that he visits and and stuff. So um, you know, he's he's but he's got you know he's also got he's just got more people who care about him and love him and and kind of want the best for him and and. Uh, I think it's it's overall been a positive experience. It was definitely a, a sort of harrowing at the time. It, it sounded like it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. But um, yeah, I haven't. I haven't. You really had to work. You know, uh, thought about becoming a foster parent again at, at various points, and I kind of, I kind of ran away <laughs> before we did it. You know, it's it's it's. It's also like it, it. It also kind of depends on what your commitment to uh, being a parent is. Your time commitment and and um, you know how much. I mean, there's people who are foster parents and who foster six six kids. I mean, that was that was what they wanted for us. You know, we had a you know my, my we dad were had getting six foster kids at one point. He, uh, yeah, he, he married well, a woman about six, and I mean, I guess it wasn't really exactly his choice, but he chose to marry her. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it, this is very this is actually pretty common in the system. You know, they said, you know, when we were getting licensed, we again, we had never been parents before. We'd never been foster parents. We'd never been anything. And, you know, they said, do you want to get licensed for six? <laughs> I was like, I was like how, about, how about we start with one? <laughs> you know, but that's not how this is. They're very used to having people be in charge of six, eight. It goes by, like, the size of your house. That's what they and the Go size of your heart, heart, Ed. I, I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, it, yeah. It, it, it's so funny to, like, hear you talk about how big he is. Because I met him at uh, Ronald's Donuts all those years oh, yeah. ago. And he was just a little skinny thing bouncing around. 
And to think that he's five six now is oh he ain't skinny. <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's 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 uh yeah he's 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 gonna be big and strong that's for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Does he play poker? He no he does not. He's he's into animation. He, oh cool. Um, he yeah he uh he kind of taught himself to do that really during the pandemic. He watched a bunch of YouTube on how to animate, and he got all, we got him a drawing pad and. You know he's he's got he's really into uh, this game Hollow Knight. I don't know if you, you've seen that game or played that game, but it has a very specific like artistic aesthetic. It's it's kind of like it's kind of like Tim Burtony. It's like you know dark, uh, whimsical, but, whimsical, yeah. right? Exactly. And um, he really is into that game and that aesthetic, and he's kind of designing these characters, kind of you know in the vein of you know that game and and. Uh, and we've been, you know, I kind of taught him how to, we downloaded Unity, and uh, which is like a framework for building games. Um, and uh, I taught him how to, you know, set up a platforming game like Hollow Knight and how to import his animations as, as characters and how to kind of program their animation in the game so that his character can, you know, swing a sword and attack enemies and, and do that kind of stuff. Um, so that's kind of as far as we've gotten with it. But he's he's interested in the in the drawing and the animation part the most. You know, he likes the idea of making a game, but the the coding and and the eight the logic of the game is less interesting to him than the the art. So. It is cool. I mean, just the I guess the combination of like technology and then YouTube. Just where you know a kid at the age of 12 can have such a like specific interest and a way of of like nurturing it and actually you know doing like meaningful stuff in that in that space i just say i mean not the kids haven't always had interest but it seems like there's so much room now for you know, any any you know niche interest that you can just get so much access it's, to information and the best it's so amazing i mean youtube is just an amazing amazing resource i mean this kid has taught himself so many different things over the course of his life already, I mean, again, he's only 12, for a while he was very interested in orthodontics. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he watched these videos about how to, like, make a retainer. Like, like... That is awesome. And, and he was, like, home-making his own retainers. I bought him the wire that you used to make the retainer. <laughs> and then we, like, did the resin, and he would use clay or whatever. Like, he would use, like, Play-Doh to make the... And then he would like bend the wire and like I mean I mean he was he must have been like eight nine <laughs> I don't know he was fascinated just fascinated and he would just watch these is dry adult you know obviously this is not for eight year olds this is for people going to orthodontic school right as adults and you know and they're like here's how to make a retainer I mean he would just sit there and watch it and then and then. You know, I, anyway, it was it was it was fascinating to watch it. It's just fascinating to watch a kid, you know, with natural kind of inquisitiveness, you know, uh, try to, and he taught himself gymnastics the same way. Like he watched YouTube videos and taught himself to do like aerial flips and stuff. And I was like, oh my god! So, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I don't yep. I don't want to cut you off, Carlos. If there's any more that you wanted to um, to talk about before we let Ed go. No, no, it was definitely good to hear from Ed. This is this has been this has been great, man. I'm and I'm happy to hear about all your success. Yeah, no, thank you for for having me on. It's it's fun. I I, I love you all. I I think this is a great podcast, and I I always come with my own 
weirdness <laughs> every time. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate you affording me the 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 forum for my weirdness. I love it. I think um, at least some subset of our audience. This will probably not be our most listened to episode ever, but no, I'm sure. I, I think some <laughs> some set some subset of the audience uh, has has delighted like, in this. Can hour. you tell me what to do with Eighth King, please? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> can't do that. Well, thanks, Ed. It was uh, it was really good hearing from you and, uh, and and seeing you as well. You truly do look good. Well, thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> All right, take care. Have a good night, guys. All right. Yep. All right. Bye bye. Devotion of a comma light of the fair passage of a bill And who will sign us into law? I know you want